right, good morning. So good to see you, good to be with you here this morning. If you have your Bibles, open up to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Everybody ready for the eclipse tomorrow? I was telling early service uh, this morning that last time there was one of these, I said it was in 79, I think I was in the second grade or something like that, and I remember the whole class working on these cardboard things. Anybody else do that, where you, the light shines in a little hole and it shows the shadow on the thing so you don't look directly into it? And I remember thinking, oh, how lame is that? I just want to see the thing. And, uh, but luckily, somebody had brought their dad's um, welding mask to class, and so we looked at it through that. And uh, I just remember how bad it smelled inside that mass, but it was so cool just to, just to be able to see it, man. It was better than that cardboard thing, but uh, we got that tomorrow. Um, y'all know what an eclipse means, I mean, according to Scripture, right? Nothing. <laughs> it's just God showing out and entertaining us. You know, you hear all these conspiracy theories and eclipse means this. And anytime some, you know, th- something happens with the planets and everything, people want to make it more than it is, whether it's a blood moon or eclipse or this and that. And, man, it's just God showing out and going, y'all watch this. This is cool. So uh, just enjoy it for what it is and just give him glory for it. First Corinthians uh, chapter 6. We're going to look at the first 10 verses here, so let's all stand as we... Read the word of the Lord. Starting in verse 1, Paul says, And working together with him, we also urge you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, At the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. Given no cause for offense in anything, so that the ministry will not be discredited, but in everything, commending ourselves as servants of God, in much endurance, in afflictions, in hardships, in distresses, in beatings, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in hunger, in purity, in knowledge, in patience, in kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, by glory and dishonor, by evil report and good report, regarded as deceivers and yet true, as unknown yet well known, as dying yet behold we live. As punished, yet not put to death. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. And having, as having nothing, and yet possessing all things. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for these truths that we can stand on and declare as ours for those who belong to you. And Lord, as we sang and declared that there is power in the name of Jesus to break every chain. Lord, we also make that our prayer. That your name, the power of it that's declared here, Lord, even in your word and in this message will break chains that people are coming in here wearing this morning. Uh, Lord, we, we ask of and we expect something miraculous to happen among us so that you will get all the glory and the praise for it. In Jesus' name, amen. About 12 years ago, when I was the youth pastor here, I went to a 
National Youth Ministers Conference. And at that conference, I learned about this in-depth, years-long study that had been uh, going on looking at youth culture at that time. And part of that conference was this organization that was doing it, sharing the results of this study that they had been conducting. And this particular study was unique, and it was unlike any that had ever been done before, and it revealed some pretty staggering things regarding the teenage generation. And what made it different from other studies and surveys was that the the people who were associated with the organization that were doing it, they didn't just go around and ask student questions. They didn't give them a a handout for them to fill out a questionnaire or anything like that or conduct surveys over the phone. What they did was they went and became uh, substitute teachers in high schools all across the country. And from that embedded position, they just sat and listened and observed and engaged with them as far as the students would let them. And they were, by doing that, able to gain some insight into that teenage culture that they would not have gained had they just asked them to fill out a, a, a questionnaire. They did this for like two or three years, and then at the end of that time, they all came together to discuss their findings, and what they came to discover was that no matter what part of the country they had done this in, uh, all of their observations matched. I mean, what, what they discovered about teenagers in the Northeast was the same as the things they discovered about teenagers in the Midwest and, and so on and so on. And listening to what they observed one of the most, uh, became one of the most pro- profound things that I've ever done as a youth pastor. Listening to the results of this and the insights that they gained into teenagers and it opened my eyes to things that I didn't see before, but it also confirmed some things and helped me better understand some things that I'd also been observing myself. And of course, it gave me a better understanding as how to reach and connect with them. And from what they all observed, they came to agree that uh, they noticed something that they had only discovered before, sociologists had discovered previously, only in people groups that had been oppressed in one way or another. And they saw that the teenage generation of this time was beginning to display some of these same characteristics. And it was what they described as the world beneath the surface. And it was there within that world underground, out of view of most adults, is that they developed their own unique culture with their own uh, language even, using words that only they knew really the meaning of. They developed their own hierarchy, their own uh, social structure. They developed their own moral code and value system. And what characterized the youth culture 12 years ago still holds true today. And what I've come to discover since I have now transitioned from 
focusing primarily on youth to now dealing more with adults is that many of the ways that people operated as teenagers 12 years ago, they carried those same things over with them into adulthood. So much so that we can't really say anymore that those things are just limited to youth. And history has proven that any change that takes place in our culture as a whole usually began with teenagers. It started with teenagers and then expanded out to include the whole culture. In other words, what was unique to teenagers in the 1950s became a part of the culture as a whole in the 60s. And the way teenagers were in the 70s, the whole culture then became that way in the 80s and 90s and so on. But there was one particular characteristic of the youth culture that came out of that study that really stuck out to me the most and and said a lot. And it is one that I believe has now become a part of our culture at large and is not just limited to teenagers anymore. And it's what they described as living in layers. What that means is they discovered that teenagers would no matter or based on whatever situation they were in, they would be completely different. So the way they lived at home was different than the way they were at school, and that was different than the way they were at church. But even at school, there was layers there too. So the way they were in math class may be completely different than who they were in biology and then completely different as to who they were in athletics and and just all those kind of different layers. But what was different about that, you say, well, that's been the same for everybody. But no, this went much deeper than that. Because it wasn't just that they acted different in those situations. It was that they took on a completely different identity to where they really became a whole different person. And each of those identities had its own unique moral code its own unique set of rules. And so what would happen is you could have a student who was a big leader in the youth group on Wednesday nights. Let's say he is a a worship leader. Man, you can tell he is on fire for Jesus on Wednesday nights, but then party and sleep with his girlfriend on the weekends, and there'd be no conflict in his mind between those two. Because to them, those are completely different situations, completely different identities. And the rules for who you were on Wednesday night were different than the rules for who you were on the weekends. For them to question their sincerity as a Christian because of that would be ludicrous. Because as far as they were concerned, they were 100% sold out to Jesus in the youth setting. But Wednesday nights with Jesus is different than Friday nights with a girlfriend. And there's something different there. And those two identities do not overlap. And uh, that's what they mean as living as layers. In the past, that's what we would call a hypocrite. But in their mind, it's not hypocritical at all. It's just two completely different identities. I wish I could say that The teenagers then, 12 years ago, eventually grew out of that. Some may have. For the most part, they've carried that over into adulthood. And I wish I could say that living in layers remained a thing that is just limited to youth culture. 
But the truth is, just like with all other cultural trends, this has become another one that started with teenagers but has now infiltrated the entire culture at large to where everyone is now beginning to live in layers, teenagers and adults alike. If someone were to observe adults today the way teenagers were observed in that study, they're just really being embedded with them for long periods of time, what they would more than likely see is that many adults today now have an identity that they live according to in their home, which is different than the one that they live according to at work, which is different than the one that they live according to here in church. I mean, you can see this clearly just looking at somebody's social media page a lot of the time, which, and now social media has become yet another environment that people can now become a different person. There's a different set of rules there. And some of you may have seen something on somebody's social media page that was shocking, and then you go, wait a minute. This is that person I see at church every Sunday. Man, from what I saw at church, I thought they were really serious Christians. But now on their social media page, that's something different because they're living in layers. And what they're happening on social media is separate from what happens at church. Listen to me, folks. Some of you really need to hear this. Jesus did not leave the perfection of heaven and step into this cesspool of humanity where he became the object of ridicule, scorn, and shame and willingly endured the horrific suffering of the cross so that your life would be affected by him just one or two days a week. He did not empty himself and become a man in order to take the punishment for your sin so that he would be Lord of your life at church, but nothing more than just a bumper sticker or a cute slogan on a t-shirt the rest of the week. He didn't give his all for you so that you could have him in part. He deserves more than that. And I'm telling you, if you belong to him, you have one identity, no matter what situation you are in. You have one identity in Christ. You see, the immensity of the majesty of the God of the universe is so huge that he transcends everything. He is an infinite being, which means he is not limited by or to a thing. You and I are limited, and we operate within limits everywhere in this world. There are, our days are limited to 24 hours. Our weeks are limited to seven days. There are 60 seconds in every minute and 60 minutes in every hour. So time that we exist in has its limits. There's even a limit to the primary colors of our world. There's only three, red, blue, and yellow, and all the other colors, different colors we've seen are just mixtures, various mixtures of just those three. Our colors are limited. The worship that we give to God through music 
isn't even close to being adequate when it comes to giving him what he deserves because our music in this world is even limited. There are only 12 unique notes and all other tones and pitches are just variations of those 12 limited notes. So we operate in a world that is consistently filled with limits and boundaries and compartments. But God is not confined by any of that. He is not even limited by time because he exists outside of time. What that means is that the past is not just something God knows about. It's a place where he is. The future is not something that God knows about. It is a place where he is, even right now. Now, he exists outside of the limits that we know as time. And if that stretches your brain just a little bit, that's a good thing because it should. I mean, trying to make sense of an infinite God with a finite brain will do that. It can give you a headache if you think about it long enough. You know, this is really one of the reasons why I I look forward to heaven. Because if heaven is infinite... That means there are colors in heaven that our eyes have yet to see. There are sounds, there are musical notes in heaven that our ears haven't even heard yet. Because God is infinite and he's not limited to anything. The God of the universe transcends time, color, music, and everything that we put limits on. And if he transcends all that, then he darn sure ought to transcend everything that we try to compartmentalize in our lives, especially the identities that we take on depending on whatever situation that we are in. I mean, I hope you can see how silly that is, actually, in light of God's transcendent and infinite nature, that we are trying to limit an infinite God. It's just as if that we think that he's okay with it going, my infinite glory and essence is not limited to anything except for the daily situations that make up the puny nanosecond of existence that's called your life. I will be limited by that. Please, I don't think so. And so for us to even attempt to limit God like that, just shows how arrogant and rebellious our hearts really are. It means that we take control of our life, not God. But he says in Isaiah 42, 8, I am the Lord that is my name. I will not give my glory to another. To be in Christ does not mean that we've got Jesus for those times when we really need him and other than that it's all about us or that he's just a part of our life when he's most convenient for us to be in him means that you are in the one who isn't limited by anything which also means that he is in you what that means is that whatever situation you're in he's there Wherever you go, whether it's at home, at work, on vacation, everywhere, you take with you the very presence and power of Christ himself. Even when you're on vacation, 
he is not. And so wherever you go, because of that power and that presence of him that dwells in you, the kingdom of God has just come into that place where you are standing. It doesn't matter. You can walk into a bar. And if you have the spirit of Christ himself living in you, the kingdom of God has just now intersected a bar. It is there. You represent it and you take it with you everywhere you go. Most of us don't even know that. We're oblivious to it. So we just live according to whatever the situation dictates rather than what the kingdom of God dictates that we are a part of. If you have limited Jesus to just certain parts of your life, you really need to re-examine what it means to be a Christian because I'm telling you right now, that's not it. It, It's just not. In this text that we read in 2 Corinthians 6, Paul's essentially saying this, that no matter what his circumstance, there is just one identity that he has, a servant of God. No matter how bad things look, no matter how good things look, it doesn't change. Who he is as a servant of God remains constant. And I want us to look at this a little closer because I believe it speaks to something else that we also do. There's another side to this whole thing about our identity being defined by our situation. And that is that for some of you, it's not that you change your identity depending on what your situation is. It's that you think that God's opinion of you changes depending on whatever your situation is. To put it another way is that on the days that you are feeling good and doing good, God thinks really good of you. But on the days that you're feeling bad or doing bad, his opinion and his view of you changes and it's not so good. It's as if he is putting you in some cosmic timeout until you can get your act together and then he'll think good of you again. I'm sure that there are times for some of you that you don't think that you deserve to be called a servant of God. Let's look at this text here. And before we really get into it, I want to give you a little background on this letter because it really helps make sense of what Paul is saying here. This is the second letter that Paul has written to the Corinthian church. And uh, I love the Corinthian church simply because they seem to be quite the mess. (laughs) They were a mess. And if you had gone to any of their church services during that time, you'd probably go, they don't have anything together. I'm out of here. They don't know what they're doing. Paul's first letter was mostly about how they had just kind of let things get out of hand. It's like they were so excited about this new life in Christ and this supernatural power inside them that they had access to that they just kind of went crazy with it for a little while. And things got out of order whenever they came together. I mean, they were just a bunch of immature baby Christians who needed some guidance. And so that's what Paul's first letter to them was for. But his second letter to them here is for a different reason. This letter was written to address a problem that many of them had been buying into a false message that was being uh, put forth at that time. And what they were believing was essentially what we've come to know today as the prosperity gospel. That is not a new thing. I mean, it was even being propagated way back then. 
Some people had come into the Corinthian church and started spreading this stuff and discrediting Paul as a legitimate apostle because he didn't fit the prosperity narrative. According to them, a legitimate man of God, a legitimate apostle, should be somebody who looked good, sounded good, and was successful according to the world's standards. It was the same stuff that the prosperity gospel peddles today, that success and health and wealth are the visible signs of God's special anointing on someone's life. And if you don't have those things, well, then you must not be anointed. And so they were judging Paul and others with that same criteria that people use today. I mean, I can't tell you how many people that I've heard talk, tell me, defend preachers who do not whatsoever preach the truth of the gospel. They're just preaching this mealy, soft, ear-tickling garbage, but yet they have these huge megachurches and people going, well, the fact that they draw so many people shows them that they must be saying something true. No, not necessarily. I mean, God's Word says that in the end times, uh, towards the end, people are going to accumulate among themselves those who just uh, tickle their ears and tell them what they want to hear. And there's nothing wrong with drawing a large crowd at all. I mean, I hope we get as many people here as possible to hear the gospel. But a large crowd does not mean that there's something good or godly going on at all or that they have some special anointing. And so according to them, if you didn't have those markers of big crowds and a good look and a popular smooth sound and you made everybody laugh and everybody just loved the stories you told then you weren't legit and so Paul is basically writing this letter to shoot all this down saying that those are not the things that qualify him as an apostle and so in light of all that look at the very first thing he says in verse 4 he says but in everything commending ourselves as servants of God Not just in certain situations, not just in health and wealth and how good we sound or how big the crowds are that we draw, but in everything. And then he starts listing things that some people might point to as reasons why God's anointing is not on Paul, why he should be discredited as being a legitimate apostle. So let's read on here the things that he says that we are servants of God in. First, he says, in much endurance and afflictions. Now, I know there's a comma there that's separating endurance and afflictions. And in some translations, there's even a semicolon which separates those two things. But based on the context here, I really believe that Paul didn't intend for those to be two separate things, but for them to be together in one phrase as uh, like he's given this list and puts endurance and afflictions at the top. So he's saying we're commending ourselves as servants of God in much endurance and afflictions. Have you ever been afflicted? Anybody in here ever been through an affliction? You don't know. uh, The definition is a state of pain, distress, grief, or misery. Anybody been afflicted? We all have, at least on some level. 
And some of you are going, well, I know the big affliction that so-and-so is going on over there, so I'm not raising my hand because my affliction can't compare with his. We all go through afflictions, at least on some level. It can be something emotional or even a physical affliction. I'm telling you, enduring an affliction can cause you to start thinking things that just are not true at all. It can make you doubt God, wonder where He is, or even assume that you're, you must be being punished for something that you must have done for Him to cause you to go through this. Being considered a servant of God would not really be on the radar of very many who are enduring an affliction. And then he goes on, in hardships and distresses. So, so far we've got afflictions, hardships, and distresses, which sounds like he's basically saying the same thing, but just using different words. In our English language, that would be the case. But in the Greek language that Paul wrote this letter in, these were three different words that he was using, all having different definitions. I'm not going to go into each one, but basically what it was was that each of these was getting progressively worse, as in going through a distress was worse than going through an affliction. As a pastor, I deal with many people who at times are at the very lowest of emotions, mental state, because of the afflictions and hardships and distresses that they go through. There are situations that many of us in this room have gone through that can bring on some pretty dark emotions and dark thoughts. And in those places, it can seem that God is very, very far away. But even in that dark pit, Paul says, even there, we are commended as servants of God. It doesn't change. Those situations may affect our view of God, but I'm telling you right now, they in no way whatsoever affect His view of you. If you are in Christ, that doesn't change. In verse 5, he says it doesn't change even when we endure beatings. I'm sure he was referring to the physical beatings that he received as a result of preaching the gospel. But if statistics are right, there are quite a few in here who have endured beatings for far, far less. Either from a parent or a spouse, boyfriend, someone. Maybe it was because you were the object of some intense bullying at school. Paul took his beatings for preaching the gospel. You took them for no other reason than because you were there. You were the closest thing available to whoever was doing that. And you may have even taken it as being because of a reason for something that you must have done. And Satan has attacked you with the lies 
and gotten you maybe even to believe that in some twisted way that you deserved it. I've talked to people who have just been weighted down with that thought. It must be because I deserved it or this wouldn't have happened. I really hope that the Lord has set you free from that lie because that's what it is. It is a lie. For you to endure that didn't mean that something was wrong with you. It meant something was wrong with that other jerk. Something was wrong with them. And then Paul continues with imprisonment and tumults. Now again, he's probably referring to the being in actual prison behind bars because he was many times. But I believe it also applies to other kinds of imprisonment, other kinds of bondage. You can be full of the Holy Spirit, a sold-out child of God, and still be imprisoned to things like addiction, depression, mood disorders, and many other things. A lot of that is just part of the fact that we still live in a broken world. And just because you endure that does not change God's view of you if you are in Christ. Again, even in imprisonment, it doesn't change. A tumult is what we saw happening in Charlottesville last week. It's a loud uprising of people that usually results in violence. And Paul caused quite a few of those just by preaching the gospel. And so you can see then how Paul may have been looked down on by others who looked at worldly success as signs of God's anointing. I mean, if you think about it, if you take two preachers, one is drawing large crowds and he's building a mega church because people just love the sweetness of his words. And things are happening over there at that church. And then you've got Paul over here. All he's doing is creating riots everywhere he goes because he's preaching the truth that people don't want to hear. Well, nowadays, if you ask which one do you want to follow, most of the people go, I want the one with the big church. I want the one with the big following and the smooth talk. This guy over here, I don't know what he's doing. He's just a troublemaker. He's just causing too much. Paul's going, that's not what defines a servant of God. Even in tumults, my identity does not change. He continues on with more bad situations and experience, and then he goes into some really good things too. We don't have time to go through every one of these things, but the bottom line is this. The point I believe that Paul is making is that no matter what your situation is, whether it's your physical situation, whether it's your emotional situation, mental situation, whatever, if you are in Christ, nothing about your identity in him changes in the least bit. Nothing changes. His view of you does not waver. You are his child. You are favored, highly favored, cherished, and loved And no hardship you face disqualifies you in any way from the mandate that he saved you to. 
And that mandate is to be his representative on earth and carry his presence and power with you everywhere you go. Just because the tendency of our our culture is to live in layers does not mean that we have to go along with it. Jesus was a very countercultural figure when he was here on earth, and he still is today too. And if we belong to him, we are a countercultural race of people. Part of that means reflecting the character and glory of God no matter what the situation. We are not limited by circumstance because we have the infinite presence of the Holy Spirit residing in us who is not limited by anything. Tell you what, I am so thankful that God is a patient God. If he wasn't, I'd be wiped out a long time ago. I'm so glad he's patient, and he is, but I can also tell you this. He will not tolerate forever being used as nothing more than just a good luck charm. He will not tolerate forever being just an accessory to your life rather than the focal point of it because he cannot in his infinite glory and justice continue to allow the belittlement of his name. He just can't do it. And if that's really all he has been to you, I just want to tell you, you are missing out on so much in life. You're selling yourself so short. Missing out on what he has for you. Letting him be primary in every layer of your life. I promise you will be the best thing that you ever did. And you will come to know what Jesus meant when he said in John 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. He didn't say I came that they will have it in pieces, that they may have it abundantly because it transcends everything. Let's pray. Lord, I just worship you and give you glory and honor for being a incredibly glorious and infinite being who came into the limited and broken world that we live in to save us from it. That we can transcend everything that we are limited by, even the everyday situations that we walk into. God, I pray for those in here right now who have just treated you as nothing more than just window dressing to their life and not the house that they live in. God, to those that you are just nothing more than an accessory, just there in case they need you or, or, or when it's beneficial to them or makes them look good on Sundays or Wednesdays. Lord, I pray that right now that they, will, they would receive a revelation of who you are where they won't want to put you on the shelf anymore. 
They would want to make you not just a part, but the very center of everything they do, whether they're at home or at work or at school or with their boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever the situation is, Lord, that they are first and foremost a child of the living God. They are a follower of Christ. They are a servant of God. And that nothing else changes that. And then, Lord, I pray for those who are in maybe one of those dark pits right now where just just the hardship that they are going through, struggles that they are having, and it just brought up these thoughts that Satan has thrown at them that your view of them has changed somehow, that their identity has changed because of whatever this is that they're going through. Lord, I pray that you would just shout through all that noise and let them hear you declaring over them who they are, who you have made them, and that no hardship, no struggle they go through will change that. Lord, I do believe that you are calling some to repentance in this place this morning. Lord, I just pray for just a spirit of repentance to break break out all across this place. Lord, that there are so many that are starting new situations right now in the midst of starting a new school year. Lord, I pray for the students in here that are doing that, that this year will be different, that this year they're not living in different layers. They're living in one layer called Jesus. And he affects every circumstance. He affects every situation. Lord, cause a revolution to happen in this generation, I pray. And it will just spill over into the rest of the culture. Holy Spirit, would you come and do what only you can do right now? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.